Hello and welcome to The F Word, a podcast about the magical and glamorous world of web standards, browsers and everything in between. I'm Bruce Lawson and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, UK. I'm Vadim and I'm coming to you from Berlin, Germany. And we have a V special guest today. Somebody known to you all on the Twitters and the conference circuit and an old friend of both mine and Vadim. Uh, so, Madame et Messieurs, Pigap Nong, I would like to introduce you to our guest, Ms. Leia Veru. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me, Bruce and Vadim. You're very welcome. Have you ever listened to one of our podcasts before? I've listened to parts of some of the podcasts, but I don't think I have the attention span to listen to a whole podcast start to finish. Okay, so you, you've probably zoned out when we do the uh, ritual humiliation of the guests, so you've, you've, not, you've not known that's going to come about. Oh dear. Oh well. So wh- where are you, Leia, at the moment? Are you in the States or Greece? You divide your time between them, I think. I do, yes. I do divide my time between them. I'm currently in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the US. I'm sorry? I'm currently in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in, in the US. No, I heard you. I was just expressing sympathy. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> That's the US, mate. Oh, yeah. I could see from Vadim's face, he could see the lead into that crappy joke coming up already. He just sort of had the, uh, the sad look that crosses Vadim's face when he can see I'm going in for a joke. So, Leah, for the three or four people in the universe who haven't yet had the pleasure of making your acquaintance or seeing your work, tell us in 19.3 seconds and no more everything people need to know about you. Are you keeping count? No, of course not. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to speak a lot. Go for it. Anyway, so I, I tend to wear many hats. Officially, my day job is uh, human-computer interaction research and teaching at MIT. Um, human-computer interaction is just the fancy academic word for user experience and usability, just because academics like having separate words for everything. I've also had a very active role in developing several web standards. I've been active in the CSS working group for several, like over a decade at this point. I co-edited several CSS specifications, and I've also been a, an elected tag member. And... I I've also started several open source projects over the years. Some of them have become popular. Like I think the most popular one is Prism, which is used for syntax highlighting all over the web. It has like almost a billion NPM downloads at this point. I didn't know that was you, actually. I know you and I know that and I'd never put the two and two together. Well... I was the sole maintainer for a few years, but at this point, it has a really nice team of maintainers who are all like incredibly capable people. I've had an advisory role in the project for like the last few years. I like advisory roles. It's kind of, you can get the glory and boss other people about, but don't have to do anything else, which is good. Well, you can't really boss people around on open source projects because they're all volunteers and they can fuck off any moment if if you don't treat them well. Why none of my open source projects have done anything, I think. So I remember when you and I met in, very, very long time ago, not long after Queen Victoria's funeral, actually. And uh, I introduced you at some event in some rather mundane studio or something in London. Is it fair to say that you 
are a, a designer primarily who kind of got interested in the coding and then branched out or are you did you always start off as a as a polymath what what, what was your journey to these uh, glamorous heights that you're on now so how far back do you want me to go i actually got interested in coding when i was like 11 or or 12 depending on how you count and what really got me into it was that like you know other people get into programming because they like solving problems or they like t- taking things apart and seeing how they work. For me, it was always like, I like the idea of making tools that people use. When I was introduced to programming, it blew my mind because I was thinking, whoa, I can make things that people use that actually look professional. Because like until that point, I was making things with my hands, like, you know, purses and notepads and wallets and that sort of things. And they looked very amateurish because I was a kid. And I was like, whoa, with programming, I can actually make things that look professional if I try hard enough. And, you know, this sort of like, if I try hard enough, I'll get users was the carrot that like kept me going throughout my entire teenage years. And eventually like it became what I did for a living. When I was actually, when I actually started working, uh, like, you know, actually getting paid for what I do, I did start from graphic design, which was just, I guess, serendipity. Like, you know, I got interested in graphic design because of this project we had with a friend of mine, which eventually turned into a company. I was doing both the coding and the graphic design. I guess I I realized I really enjoy the graphic design aspect. I I started learning more about it, like being involved in graphic designer circles, practicing, eventually getting projects. And like for two years or so, I was primarily a designer. I did some coding projects, but it was most of my clients and most of my projects at, at the time were either graphic design, like corporate identity, marketing materials, posters, that sort of thing, or web or a few small web design projects. I remember back in the beginning of the thousands or middle of the thousands, we were all like webmasters and we were doing everything for starting from design to PHP on, on backend. So I've been doing almost the same thing, like working in a small studio and doing everything that's available. So, but I, I think I met you back in Oslo back in 2009 or something like that. And I saw your, some of your talks later, like on CSS and SVG, and you became known, widely known as a like CSS magician, one of the first, one of the few first people who would uh, unveil some secret parts of CSS. Uh, we, can, we can jump to this part. Uh, how, how did you became uh, public and publicly known with your skills and your front end? So part of it is that I have this bad habit that every time I use something, anything, a product, a technology, whatever, event, if I stay with it long enough, I come up with ways to improve it. And of course, that, that yeah. extends to CSS as well. So as I was using CSS um, as a developer in my startup at the time, uh, back in Greece, uh, I started coming up with tips and tricks that I could use that I haven't seen published anywhere. Um, I started making tools primarily for myself, but that I thought might be useful for other people. I started coming up with ways to improve the syntax of CSS altogether and publishing them, posting them in the mailing list. Back then, the CSS working group was using a mailing list. And I guess they liked my suggestions because at some point they invited me over as an invited expert. And I've stayed with the CSS working group ever since. I was releasing more open source projects around not just CSS, but like web technologies in general. Some tools were more geared around uh, JavaScript as well. Some tools were more related to UI. Eventually, my projects started getting traction as well. And I think what was sort of my break in this circuit was when I got invited for Front Trends in 2010. At the time, I was like terrified. I was like, is this is this a hoax? Why would somebody invite me to a conference? And I saw the list of the other speakers and I was like, I know these people. Like, 
surely that that is not a hoax if it's a hoax it's a very elaborate one and of course then like panic set in even though i'm, I'm an extrovert i identify as a shy extrovert like I love human interaction, but I'm actually, I get, I can also get very nervous and very shy. So I'm not a natural public speaker. Like I don't, it does not come naturally to me. It terrifies me. So my initial reaction after I realized that this was for reals was panic. Like, fuck, fuck, fuck. I can't do this. But I pushed myself. I was like, no, Leah, this is good for you. You have to do it. It was just like that. Like I basically forced myself to say yes and actually do it. I didn't, I hadn't even attended a conference at the time. So I bought a ticket for Frontiers because I didn't want the first conference I attend to also be the first conference I speak at. Uh, and Frontiers was like two weeks before Front Trends at the time. I attended, it blew my mind. I met so many people that I was, that I only had heard of at the time, like PPK or Christian Heilman uh, are the two I remember when I was, I was really looking up to them and I, I, was meeting them in person finally. And I basically went home after this conference, entirely redid my slides because my, my slides at the time were like death by PowerPoint. I entirely redid everything. I introduced like live demos so that I could show. Oh yeah, famous live demos. I remember your, your talks, like you, you were just coding on your slides. That started from that talk at Front Trends. I mean, it became more elaborate later in, in the Front Trends talk. It was like it's just an editable style element that, that just had content editable and I was editing it. Okay. And people loved it. I thought I, mm -hmm. I remember I thought I was doing terribly at the time. It was a two-hour talk. My first talk was a two-hour talk with a break in between. And for the first wow. hour, like, you know, I was seeing some people sort of being sleepy in the audience. And I was like paying so much attention to like what the audience looked like. And I, I saw some people sleeping and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm screwing this up. I'm doing so badly. And then when, during the break, I logged onto Twitter and it was like a flood of tweets about how amazing that talk was and how it blew their minds. And like the organizers were like, this is like the most like talk at the conference. Like people are tweeting like crazy about it. And, and I was shocked because I thought I was doing really badly. And then I had to go and do it for another hour. But at least I was, I was more confident, I guess, after that break. Whoa. You checked the Twitters midway through a talk. Nerves of steel. It takes me about hours after I finish a talk before I can even bear to see what people have said. I, mind you, at least everyone was lovely to you. People are uh, people are often assholes on Twitter, but in terms of like talk feedback, I haven't really seen that sort of thing. Personally, like it's the first thing I want to do after a talk, like go onto Twitter and see what people are saying. It's mm -hmm. it's like a huge dopamine hit to see like people liking your talk and saying good things and saying how you, they learn stuff. And it's something you don't really get from academia, from teaching in a university setting. You don't get this kind of like connection, I guess, with the audience, this kind of like the audience being really, really appreciative of what you're trying to do uh, and being really excited about what they're learning. It's been a while since I was in academia, but I can't imagine it's changed much since my day in which I'd show up with a hangover and some middle-aged man with uh, leather on the sleeves of his uh, ancient coat would um, basically read out from a handout and then we'd all go home and it used to annoy me. But uh, yeah, I mean, checking the Twitter is always the first thing I want to do when I finish the talk, but... I don't dare to. Enough about me. So now you are an elected member of the TAG. I don't know much about what the TAG actually does, and I'm aware it's not that much of a high-profile organisation. You know, it's sort of 
like the the NSA of the W3C, if you will. So would you mind just telling us what the tag is and how you became involved and kind of what it does and maybe your your niche within it? We should probably start by saying that TAG stands for Technical Architecture Group. It is a special working group within W3C. Its mission on a very high level is to document the architecture of the web and assist the community in interpreting it. But what does this mean in practice? Like, what does the TAG actually do? And in practice, this is realized through two parallel but very connected efforts design reviews, and principles documents. So design reviews are basically anybody that wants to extend the web platform with a new feature has to request a review from the tag. And we review these proposals uh, on the basis of several different factors, such as API design, security and privacy, accessibility, consistency with the rest of the platform. It's lots of different things. And in fact, Google has tag review as part of its shipping process. Like for something to ship in Blink, Chromium, they need to request a tag review. And also for a W3C specification to advance, they also need to request a a, a tag review. It's part of the horizontal review stage. But also we compile our experience from these design reviews into several principles documents. We have the design principles, which is sort of like API design for the web. We have our ethical design principles, which are about respecting end users and authors and like not violating security and privacy and things like that. And we also periodically have like one-off findings that are about specific things. Like for example, the two recent findings we've been working on is one about uh, eliminating third-party cookies from the web. Like how, what would the web look like and how would like guidance for people trying to come up with solutions to this problem? And another one was about the sustainability of bundling and caching, where we ex- we expressed several. And I was actually involved in the la- in the la- in the second one. I was one of the editors, uh, Sangwon being uh, another one, which is about concerns we have about the how bundling is seen as a required part of deploying anything to the web platform and also the sustainability of double-keyed caching. Uh, are you familiar with what double-keyed caching is? I am not at all. Please tell us. So until recently, we used to tell developers that if they use a library from a CDN, then uh, they they get to benefit by the library potentially already being cached uh, mm-hmm. because another website was including it from the CDN. This has not been true for several years. The reason was that The browsers at some point decided that this makes users prone to timing attacks because the theory being that if a resource loads too fast, uh, meaning that it's cached, that means that it was the user had already visited certain websites that link to this resource. In theory, by triangulating all the different resources and figuring out what is cached, they could figure out maybe which websites they've been. The solution that browsers came up with was to basically separate partition cache by origin. So even if 100 websites are linking to the same jQuery version, you will download it 100 separate times. I mean, this does protect the privacy uh, of users, but it also introduces other problems such as in, as I'm sure you know this very well, Bruce, like in, in several countries, people pay by the megabyte and mm-hmm. they cannot afford mm-hmm. to just have everything being downloaded over and over again. And we urge browser vendors to consider other solutions to this that do not involve this kind of bandwidth bloating, uh, like maybe smart uh, delays or something like that. I mean, sure, have the the resources pretend to be downloaded from scratch, but like don't actually download them. Like there must be a better solution to this than actually having to re-download the entire resource. Yeah, the, the same goes to Google Fonts or any, any kind of uh, shared resources. 
yeah, it's, it might might take like hundreds of kilobytes of useless download. Back in my days, I remember it was a good practice to link something from from CDN because it's already cached. These days, it's antipattern. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it's kind of a shame that it's an antipattern. I th- I think there are huge benefits to that. And also, being able to link to libraries from CDNs is also offers a, a smoother learning curve for people that are new to web development. It's not a great story to tell novices that, you know, to develop any web application, now you have to install uh, NPM and build tools. And like, I've been seeing this a lot because I've, not just in our students, but also in academia, there's a lot of people that they might be amazing computer scientists, but they're not used to doing a lot of web development work. And when you explain to them how much upfront cost there is, how much effort they need to put in to just like deploying the simplest of websites, they are they're shocked that like they have to do all this. And even things that we don't even consider, like, you know, install Node, install NPM. Of course, everybody has these tools. Like, well, People who are new to this industry don't necessarily like it's some. It's yet another step that they had to that they have to do and understand. Well, I mean, I, I do not right now because I'm between jobs, but I do this stuff day in day out, and it still shocks me. You know, like uh, the tiniest feature, like download this stuff from npm, and I see all this all this matrix-like screen of things appearing on my computer from who knows where, who knows what they're doing, who knows what's in them. I don't even know where they they live when they're in my computer. It gives me a bit of anxiety. But uh, tell me, off topic, but well, on topic, but tangentially, why did the smart delay thing not get implemented? Because that sounds a real sensible thing. You know, just pretend that you're downloading 100 kilobytes, so... The timing attack can't happen, but don't actually download it. What was the problem there? I'm not a hundred percent sure that that this has even been considered, but uh, I think it might be the the difficulty of actually of actually emulating a delay that truly looks organic. But I mean, these are smart people. Surely, this is not an insurmountable problem. I'm sure it was just the quickest solution to just limit uh, resources to their uh, domains then you can implement something later once you figure out what to do and they never did and i guess if you're if you're someone working in uh, a country with huge bandwidth where it's basically unlimited and you don't pay by the kilobyte and internet speeds are really fast it's not something you really consider uh, it's not top of mind that you know increasing bandwidth like this is is a problem hang on are you by any chance implying that the people who run and control the internet might all be rich people with top of the range computers that might actually be from their employers on super fast broadband who don't actually consider people in the rest of the world no way no way Attribute to malice, what can be explained by just forgetfulness, I guess. Uh, if something is not mm-hmm. top of mind, then it's it's often easy to forget it. Uh, it's it's often easy to just not think about it. I do think that in in general, even people who live in these areas and who are generally affluent, they do want to not inconvenience people in develop in the developing world. It's it's something that they need to consciously remember. No, I. I, I... I reluctantly have to th- say I, I, I believe you're right. It's like, I mean, I, I, I work in accessibility and uh, over my four or five decades on this marvellous blue marble of ours, I've come to realise that 
most people in the world are not actually evil and don't want to exclude somebody with disabilities. It's just if you're in your early 20s on super fast uh, stuff and you don't have a disability, you don't know somebody who does, it's actually quite hard for you to put yourself in the position of this person who's you know for you completely beyond your realm of experience and so you know when i'm doing accessibility audits i always try not to say this contravenes WCAG 9.7.3.2.4. I always try and say, you know, my neighbour Jane, who has perfect eyesight but terrible arthritis, doesn't use a mouse, but she's not a screen reader user. And then people go, oh, yeah, actually, I hadn't thought of that. And then once they thought of it, it, it lingers in their brain for a while because, you know, most people are not evil present company accepted of course talk talking of not being evil what you were saying about the tags mission you know making sure security internationalization accessibility uh, consistency looking after the users it sounds to me almost like you are the um the crack squad who are enforcing those html design principles that uh luminaries like uh Halcom and Van Kesteren and uh Charles McCarthy Neville wrote at the time when the what WG was just beginning you know with the the document with the marvelous priority of constituencies in it like users come first and then come the next parties yeah the priority of yeah. constituencies is one of the design principles but the design principles are not exactly an extension of that of that old html design principles document although we have folded a lot of these in but some of the principles from that document actually fit better in ethical design principles mm -hmm. some of them are more about api design so they are they became part of the design principles document i think at this point we've probably incorporated the spirit of all of them in some form in one of our documents but they are a separate document so you're like the enforcers of niceness well we don't actually have any official power uh, like companies come to us for review because they want to get our review i mean google does have this rule that uh, anybody that wants to ship to blink needs to ask for tag review but the rule is just that they have to ask for tag review the rule is not that they have to pass tag review and we have seen things shipping in Chrome that Google has just felt very strongly about, and they did not actually pass tag review. We had concerns, we closed the review with concerns, or even as entirely as unsatisfied, and they still shipped. I mean, they do take it seriously, they do try to iterate. Uh, we've had a lot of cases where we worked together with the implementers, refined the proposal, eliminated a lot of the issues. Like, the success stories are more, uh, are far more than, than these, but there are cases where things shipped anyway. But you're not actually empowered to go and just, like, beat somebody up if they don't listen to you. No, we do not. <laughs> and also, right now, we get more review requests from certain working groups than others. Like, we don't get as many reviews from TC39 specifications, although I'm, ac I'm, I'm actually working to change that. And there, we have been discussing with TC39 that maybe tag review could be added as part of the review process for stage two proposals. And also, I've been trying to get TC39 to collaborate more closely with us on the, on the web platform design principles, because we are developing this document that is basically API design for the web platform. And I realized at some point that we've been getting a lot more feedback from people developing browser APIs than people developing actual JavaScript APIs that span mm -hmm. the entire ecosystem, not necessarily just the browser, but also like JavaScript runtimes, things like that. And 
given that developers use both of these together and don't, they don't even necessarily understand the difference, I mean, do, do developers understand the difference between, say, the temporal API and like the URL object? They just see them both as APIs that are part of the web platform. Mm -hmm. So it's important that they are consistent with each other. So I, I think it's very important to try to collaborate close, more closely with TC39. Just going to point out to listeners, if they're unfamiliar, that TC39 is actually the, the gang of people who standardize JavaScript, who are not at the W3C. I think they're ITF. And uh, TC39 actually stands for Talk Crap 39. It's good that you mentioned TC39 because I think uh, recently you posted somewhere that you're joined uh, or yet you got invited uh, to being a part of TC39. Yes, I joined TC39 being sponsored by OpenJS Foundation, although I'm still learning the ropes, like I don't have much insight. I primarily joined because we needed to collaborate with TC39 on tag stuff and we needed to solicit their feedback on certain things. And there were certain private repos that are private to, uh, that are only visible to TC39 delegates. So uh, I was talking with Jordan and he was like, well, you should get invited to TC39 and so that we could collaborate. But you're definitely not, not a new person in the CSS working group. You have a lot of experience. So tell us more about how, how CSS working group works. What's your role there? And how, even if you're just trying the ropes in TC39, I wonder if you can already compare them, how they're different. I mean, de they definitely have a lot of differences, but I'm just curious uh, in terms of like releasing new features or reviewing new features. The way the CSS working group works is we have a GitHub repo with uh, where we post issues and proposals, bugs we found in specs, uh, things like that. And then we meet once a week to talk about these and resolve on some of them. Uh, we also meet a few times a year uh, in person, although this has changed after the pandemic and we're still not back to the pre-pandemic levels of face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, and sometimes, occasionally, we might do breakouts on specific topics, like we had one recently on scroll animations, we've had a few on nesting, but for most of our work, the entire working group is there, or at least the active members are there. We, uh, we don't really do breakouts on a regular basis. Some people have suggested we move to a breakouts uh, based model. I was one of them. Uh, but the problem is in the CSS working group, we have certain members that are involved in everything and they are actually editing almost every single spec in the group. A breakouts based model would either exclude them from certain parts of CSS or just dramatically increase their workload if, if these meetings are separate and they have to join all of them and their workload is already huge. On the other hand, the counter argument to that is that, you know, we should move towards a model where the weight of the work is not carried by primarily by two people because it's it's not right for them and it's a little bit dangerous for the group as well like let me guess it's tabatkins and fantasy yes yes okay okay i mean they're both brilliant uh like there's there's some of the smartest people i have ever met and mm -hmm. they are so knowledgeable in this stuff but they are spread out so thinly because they do so much work, especially Tab is also active in specs outside of the CSS working group as well. Like he's in TC39, he's uh, in the work, in the WG, he's like sort of everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's for sure. If uh, if Tab and uh, Elika were like riding a tandem bicycle and uh, fell down a hole, the CSS would just finish, wouldn't it? 
Um, yeah. I'm not sure it would exactly finish, but it would definitely be in a very dire position. But a- apart from this backbone of CSS, like Elke and uh, Tab, uh, what kind of people are there in working group? I mean, I'm sure there are many people from Google, Apple, Mozilla representatives. I mean, they, they get paid to be there. But what about invited experts like yourself uh, or any other kind of people? There are a few invited experts. I think at this point, they might, there might be about 10 or 15 of us. Some invited experts have funding or or sometimes it varies. Like at some point I got funding from Google for, for some of the standards work I was doing, although most of my standards work has been unpaid. And I think this is the case for many of them. Also, it, indeed, it's very hard to find time for standards if you are not paid to do it because, you know, it actively hurts your performance at your actual job. I mean... One of the reasons I took like nine years to finish my PhD is because I've been so involved in these communities and doing all this unpaid work, which is meaningful work and it's important for the web and I'm happy to do it, but it does take a toll on you. Yeah, you presumably you've got you got funding because you did lots of unpaid work and people could see that, you know, you were cool and groovy and new stuff and people wanted to fund you. But what happens if you are the new Leah Veru, but you're 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 not in Greece and able to come to Poland and do conferences. You know, you're in uh, I don't know Sri Lanka or Nepal or Uganda. Is there a chance for for those people to get funding? Is it kind of ad hoc or is there a mechanism by which um, the big companies pull some money and actively scout for new talent? Should there be? So the Google UI Fund was created. Partly to help with things like that. I mean, it was, it also aims to fund open source projects and things like that. But an explicit goal of that is, uh, funding spec work. That is also how some of my spec work was funded. Although, uh, my understanding is that it can't be used to fund travel by itself. It could be used to cover travel in addition to other spec work. It's nice to have initiatives like that, but it's not sustainable mm-hmm. on its own. And like this is a huge problem. The fact that um, a lot of spec work is on a volunteer, unpaid basis, or even in the tag, which the tag is basically the web platform's review board. You would mm-hmm. expect that companies would do anything they could to make sure that this work is sustainable for the few people that are on the tag. The reality is that a lot of tag members cannot even fund their travel. Recently, we had a face-to-face meeting in Tokyo, and we got like less than half of the tag, I think, because a lot of people couldn't find funding. Personally, I, my my travel... Uh, my tag travel is funded by OpenJS and I'm very grateful to them because like a lot of it tends to be very expensive. Other people who are sort of very talented and offer a lot to the tag but are not as prominent in the developer community uh, don't get this uh, this benefit, don't get anybody funding them. But also if you're employed somewhere and you're doing this as as an extra, most employers do not value this kind of work. You're actively working against your performance review by devoting time to standards work in most positions. There are very few positions that actually encourage and value standards work. There's very few positions where succeeding in that kind of work is part of your KPIs. Usually it's just work that takes time away from other activities that could actually advance your career. And I find that this is a very sad reality. I remember one story uh, a couple of years ago, I think uh, Frontiers, this community from Netherlands, tried to appoint Rachel Andrew 
as their community representative to W3C or CSS Working Group. Not sure how it ended up, uh, but uh, they tried. I'm pretty sure they did appoint her, at least for you know a year or something. She certainly went and, and repped Frontiers. It was at a time of quite a lot of turmoil. I can't remember what, what was going on in the CSS Working Group, but they really needed a Rachel to get involved. I mean, actually, Leah, what you said, it, that's a really interesting insight because the cynic in me has often thought, you know, a lot of these working groups are filled by people from the big browsers uh, because they want to dominate. But what you're saying is it's actually very well could be because actually they are some of the very few companies in the world where the activities of the standards organizations and standards committees are almost completely aligned with the activities of the organization so therefore it's not actually uh, a sinister thing it's just a, a reality of alignments of um, uh, alignments of incentive if you like i do think that this is largely correct i mean we do have a lot of browser implementers in working groups as well. Don't get me wrong, like invited experts are a small percentage. But in general, most people in these working groups do genuinely seem to want what's best for the web. I mean, opinions mm -hmm. about what that is obviously differ, but it's very rare to see people overtly acting with different motivations. One thing that helps with uh, diversity in the tag is that, and in the AB as well, actually, is that you cannot have two people from the same company if someone changes affiliation, they have to leave and re run again for election. The process mandates that there can never be two people from the same company, uh, unless like one of them is just finishing their term. I mean, this is generally a good rule because otherwise I would, I would easily imagine like Google dominating uh, these groups, but also like sometimes it can be a problem because there's a lot of talent with people in the same organization. Like, so someone gets hired by Google and now has to step down from the tag or from the AB. And sometimes this is unfortunate because it's there are very few people in the world that have this kind of expertise that, that these groups need. So when we lose one, it's painful. Do you have any experience working with what WG? Like that's another working group working on the the third and the, one of the last parts of the of the web that's historically separate from W3C. Yeah, what WG works on the HTML specification and several other browser APIs like the DOM API. My understanding, and I'm not 100% sure about the inner workings of what WG, I've never actually participated. I mean, we're often in contact with what WG. We often review specifications from there. They are very active in our uh, design principles repo. We, we get their perspective on, on things. It is unclear to me how someone gets involved at what WG that doesn't actually work for a browser, which could entirely just be my lack of information, right? I'm not saying there is no process for it, but my impression is that what WG is primarily browser vendors collaborating on certain specifications. Lest our listenership think this is a terribly, uh, sinister way to run a working group being a bunch of browser vendors that's exactly how what wg was set up 
way back in the Carboniferous era when W3C said that everything needs to go to XML. Right. Um, At the time, W3C was acting like a bunch of academics on an ivory tower. It mm -hmm. has changed a lot since then, and that is not the culture at W3C anymore. But at the time, the philosophy was, let's just create an amazing version of HTML that is pure and lovely and beautiful. <laughs> And let's just not worry about these petty things like backwards compatibility, because what matters is to just have this beautiful language. <laughs> and I mean, a part of me gets it, because like they had some yeah. really beautiful ideas. And what HTML5 ended up is far less beautiful. But, you know, having ideas that no browser is willing to implement, it, it's basically intellectual masturbation. They're just pointless documents if nobody wants to implement them. Like specs don't mean anything until they have implementations. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why what WG was set up, because individuals, not even representatives of the browsers in Opera and Firefox, and pretty soon afterwards, uh, Apple just got together to work out how they could meaningfully extend HTML while keeping it backwards compatible. It worries me sometimes, because now our chums on uh, TC39 and ECMA basically rule the world of javascript or ecmascript or even action script as i like to call it um and now our friends at what wg have got control of html back is the w3c's purview influence diminished dim or diminishing or do you see the three pillars of the web, you know, JavaScript, CSS, and HTML as mutually supportive and equally valuable and equally playing the part? I think that I see them uh, more as the three pillars that are equally important and collaborating. Um, there are even people who are in more than one of these groups. Uh, the CSS working group is generally like a well-oiled machine. It works mm -hmm. really well. It's very organized. It's fairly large. We maintain a huge number of specs. Like at this point, the specs that co that CSS consists of are over a hundred, I think. I mean, definitely W3C's purview has diminished since they lost HTML and since what WG had to be founded to basically save HTML. And eventually they also lost the DOM. There are still several APIs being developed at W3C. Uh, and of, and obviously CSS as well. And of course SVG, and I believe we 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 both know a gentleman who's uh, intimately involved with SVG and was at the beginning and still is. Right. That yeah, that was going to be my next uh, the next thing I mentioned. SVG is still at W3C. All kind of community groups usually under W3C, like WebDX, this new one, or some others. Web yeah, WebDX is a great effort. Uh, I was recently participating in WebDX because. I'm going to lead State of HTML this year, which is a new survey. I'm sure you've heard of State of JavaScript and State of CSS. Mm -hmm. um, Google is funding the effort to also have a State of HTML to sort of ask questions about all these little gaps. And the WebDX group is very involved in that effort. Like we've had several calls trying to flesh out things about the survey. Is it the same platform uh, as that's running uh, State of JS and CSS? Yes, yes. Uh, Sasha good. is behind that as well. Oh, yeah. Good, good. I'm a massive noob. What is WebDX? DX stands for developer experience, basically user experience where the user is a developer. And obviously, it's, it's not just that the user happens to be a developer, it's that the tool is also related to development. So when we're talking about things like the usability of CSS or HTML or JavaScript APIs, like this is DX. 
or when we're talking about sort of the, the usability of developer tools, like all of that is, or APIs or libraries, like all of these are DX. So far, the community group uh, devotes a lot of time in like documentation, communicating certain things to developers, like in the recent meeting, baseline was also discussed. And yes, there's a lot of community groups that do really valuable things. Another community group I was involved with um, in the beginning was the Web Components Community Group, which actually started from a blog post of mine where I wrote about the failed promise of web components. And then mm -hmm. like I was approached by several people in the web components community and they were like, let's start a community group to fix these things. And I thought that's a great idea. That's where the web components community group came from. And now it's active in like so many different initiatives. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find the time to be actively involved anymore in it. I, I sort of like watch from the sidelines, uh, but I'm, I'm really happy that something like that came out of that blog post. I mean, it, it was strong word like failed promise you have to do something about it i think um I, i've noticed this quite a bit in the last couple of years the working groups are given an increasing amount of thought into things like giving stuff consistent names making sure there's consistency across apis i forget the ex exact specifics but sort of naming things similarly across grid and flexbox for example so that the the same sort of concept doesn't have a wildly different name compared with which spec it's in. And I, th I think that's really good because it, it is so important. If developers are constantly thinking, why the hell is that named this in that spec and the same kind of thing, you know, justifying content is named differently in that, it just makes them grumpy. But it's not just making them grumpy. It makes people think this is not a platform. This is a, a sort of loose agglomeration of specs that's just been randomly thrown up against the wall. And whereas it's entirely legitimate to say that the whereas we know it now is a loose collection of specs that have been thrown against the wall over the last 30 years, there really has been an effort, I think, a, a laudable effort to think about naming API consistency. So hurrah for the WebDX people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And indeed, consistency is a big part of usability. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it's not as straightforward as you might expect to decide which direction to go to be consistent, because often there are multiple different precedents, especially since mm -hmm. the web platform was developed over so many years from so many different groups, not, not necessarily always with the same amount of uh, care as we have now. Yeah, and a lot uh, of the times they were drunk when they did it back in the old days. There are such instances. <laughs> I've heard some stories. <laughs> yes. But often you get many different precedents and you don't know which one to go with. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's also the dilemma of, you know, we have a precedent here, but it's terrible. Do we choose to be consistent with the terrible precedent or do we choose to do a new thing, which is inconsistent with the past, but it's actually more usable? Got an example of that? Like, for example, there's a bunch of newer DOM APIs that actually were inspired from jQuery. Uh, I don't know if people have heard of them like before and after and replace with mm -hmm. and remove and all of these. These are a vast departure from the previous DOM APIs, which required references of like a lot more nodes in the tree. And you could argue that they're actually inconsistent with the existing DOM APIs. Which is a good thing. But exactly. Mm -hmm. Here, <laughs> it's a good thing because they were designed from the ground up to match how JavaScript developers want APIs to work, whereas the previous mm -hmm. ones were designed to match Java. Uh, and it, it, this is not even the best example, but 
it's it's one that I could remember off the top of my head. Like this this comes up a lot. And there's also external consistency and internal consistency, as we say in usability. Internal consistency is like being consistent with your own system. And mm-hmm. external consistency is being consistent with the rest of the world, other systems out there that do similar things. And sometimes this can be in conflict. Like when we added lab callers to CSS, uh, LAB callers, do you choose to be consistent with CSS or do you choose to be consistent with color science? And these do not necessarily lead to the same design decisions. Like in terms of how you pass parameters, do you use percentages for light for, for the L coordinate, things like that. Like, you know, we had a lot of disagreements in the working group based on where somebody was coming from. Like the color science people were suggesting one thing, the, the people who were primarily, whose background was primarily CSS were suggesting a different thing. There's no obvious decision in these dilemmas. It's just you have to weigh the trade-offs. Sometimes you have to do the research to see what developers expect and what developers find most ergonomic and decide on a case-by-case basis. Like when it comes to deciding between internal and external consistency, uh, a good rule of thumb is, are your users likely to be primarily people who are using this system only and have never experienced this technology outside of this? Or are they primarily people who have experienced the technology outside of this space and they are now using the system? Like in the using the example I mentioned earlier, are people who are going to use LAB callers in CSS mostly CSS developers or mostly color scientists who are using CSS? And I think you know the answer to that, right? It's CSS developers. So we chose mm-hmm. to err on the side of being consistent with the rest of CSS. There's a similar story with SVG uh, filter naming. They definitely come from some com- computer science, uh, some some graphic libraries, but it's it's impossible to remember those names and this syntax. So that's that's one of the reasons why developers prefer to use graphic editors instead of uh, man- manually writing SVG, for example. Bad design. Well, also because SVG was never written to be hand-authored. That is unfortunately a mistake in the design of SVG that uh, in- initially they, they were expecting SVG to be generated by tools. They were not expecting people to hand author it. And I think this should actually be a design principle that like any text-based syntax will be hand authored by people. Even if you think it's never going to be hand authored by people, it will be. People are going to learn it and hand author it. The only chance this is not going to happen is if it's a binary format. But as long as they can read the code, they will try to modify the code. It's good that they didn't make it binary. So thank you for for that, at least. One should always assume that somewhere in the world, somebody will be hand-authoring it because tools, you know, we're all used to everything being free, but not all tools are free. And it would be a tragedy if the only way to author SVG would be some $49 tool from Adobe or some $49 tool from a company that then went bust and so the tool died and there was no real way of authoring that would be uh that'd be dreadful you know i I speak as somebody who view sourced and fucked about in notepad and then reopened the file in the browser to see what would happen and i don't know if people still do that but if we stop the ability to do that then there won't be anybody doing that so they still do they still do good everybody everybody should have the same pain that i had (laughs) you'll know this as being being a parent Leah. it's like you know you start protecting them and you think hmm you can have pain like i did rites of passage I would I would try to eliminate the, the my daughter's pain. <laughs> ah, yeah, but you wait till they hit puberty, then you wish pain on the buggers. I've heard this before. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> 
talking of which, I mean, you, you mentioned you don't have enough time and you can't clone yourself, but you've done the next best thing and, and produced a small human. So uh, when should we expect Zoe's first spec? Well, I mean, I have been trying to show her CSS. <laughs> <laughs> she does get quite excited, like if she sees me coding something and I show her like, look at what mommy can make with code. Like I recently made her this app uh, to, to help her with reading where she like uh, presses each Greek letter and hears my voice pronouncing it. I've actually made here a bunch of apps. I wish I can release them one day, but they're so rough around the edges. I'm embarrassed to. Like I've written here another app where you write words in um, either English or Greek. And then if press enter, and if the word is correct, then you get pictures of that thing. Like it fetches them from Unsplash. The goal is to, en to encourage motivation to actually like write the word or read the word so that she gets the pictures because she really likes the seeing all the pictures. And like, you know, sometimes we do it as a reading exercise. Like, you know, I might write a word. And if she reads the word correctly, I will press enter and she will see all the pictures. And it also translates the word to the other language because she's bilingual. Uh, so she, she speaks both Greek and English fluently. Who needs toys if you have like CSS engineer mom? <laughs> I've also made her a game where like she moves the cursor around to like go to a circle and then like the circle disappears and she gets like another circle that is slightly smaller and the game like becomes progressively difficult more difficult because the circles become smaller which is which i made uh, i made for her to teach her how to use a mouse unfortunately max still don't have touch screens which is hilarious to see how she expects everything to have a touch screen i shit you not i'm nearly a hundred and i found myself trying to swipe up on a printed book <laughs> So I can only I can only imagine that every child in the universe now thinks that if it's vaguely made of glass, you should be able to control it with your finger. What, while I'm being intrusive about your personal life here, Leah, so given that uh, your husband is is one of the godfathers or the godfather of SVG, do you like have spec wars when like, he's writing SVG and you're writing CSS and you're like, hey Zoe, come and look at this stuff. <laughs> So actually, Chris is not involved in SVG any longer. Part of it was that browser vendors have a lot of pushback against improving their SVG implementations, which is really unfortunate, but it is what it is. I think part of it is just that browser developers are not interested. And the way a lot of browser companies operate is that engineer input is important for their roadmaps, uh, which is great in general, like developing a product and having and allowing in engineers to have input into the product is a fantastic idea. But it does mean that because none of them is interested in implementing SVG, the SVG implementations kind of stagnate and don't develop much. And as you can imagine, if you are the person that started SVG, that can be extremely demoralizing. So mm -hmm. in the last few years, he's primarily working on CSS, web fonts, web audio, and he's not actually actively, oh, PNG as well. Um, he was one of the authors of PNG, and now he was involved in the new version of uh, PNG that's about to come out, I think, which introduces APNG and HDR support in PNG. Very exciting things. So he just chose to put his energy into things that he feels would have more of an impact, and I can't fault him. No, no. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I've been trying to bring browsers' attention to SVG over and over again, and there seems to be reluctant. Yeah, and it, they are trying to incorporate parts of SVG into CSS, and who knows, maybe eventually if they incorporate all of SVG into CSS and HTML, they 
might have more interest in developing it further. Who knows? But to answer your original question and like the spirit of your question, yes, we do often disagree because like we do work on CSS together and Mm -hmm. we are interested in some of the same areas of CSS, specifically color. We both, we are both editors of CSS color. I joined, I think, at CSS, uh, on CSS Color 4, where, where, whereas he's always been uh, involved in CSS Color. Like, he's the resident color expert at W3C. But we have co-edited specs together. It's, a, it's generally a nice collaboration, I would say. Uh, we've uh, released a library that we coded together, and we had a very nice separation of roles. The library is called Color.js. It is a color manipulation library for JavaScript. It does a bunch of things, uh, color manipulation, gamut mapping, interpolation, like gradients, uh, that sort of thing. It's designed to be color, agno- color space agnostic, so it mm-hmm. supports. it can support literally any color space in theory. And part of it was a kitchen sink so we could experiment with the design of the native color API that we're also working on. And we had a very nice separation of duties. Like I was the, the API design person for this library and he did like a lot of the math and the, sci- the color science part because uh, he knows that far better than me. And this library has been used in like browser test suites at this point. It's been used to develop a lot of the examples in the specs. Like it's uh, sort of fairly widely used in the spec world, in the sort of people working in these uh, technologies, in in these standards. Mm-hmm. Also also in developer tools like PostCSS, I have seen a number of plugins using it uh, to, to, to fall back uh, new colors to old or vice versa. Yes, I think uh, I think we even collaborated with some of the, of the developers of these tools to make ColorJS more suitable. Like uh, when we originally launched, it was uh, an object-oriented API that was designed to be like as usable as possible. But we got the feedback that people wanted a tree-shake a tree-shakeable API, even though though that wouldn't necessarily have the same ergonomics, but it would help them reduce bundle size. And we ended up basically offering both. So why? In CSS, if I say something is color gray, it's a darker gray than if I say color dark gray. Oh, I love that question. So that actually gets you back far before my time. I've only read about this. When CSS started having colors, I I think in CSS 1, it got the... How many was it? 16 colors that HTML supported. There's a list of these somewhere in Wikipedia. I think there were white, black, red, blue... Olive, I think. Cyan, magenta, something like this. Cyan, magenta, yeah. Orange was actually added later. (laughs) Who needs orange, anyway? (laughs) Vastly overrated. True. Like, you know, there was a version, I think it was CSS2, I can't remember. But at some point later, orange was added, just orange. And then when CSS was modularized and we got like a CSS color three module, we got a slew of named colors that actually came from a different source. They came from X11. Uh, X11 is this old operating system. Right. So you merged two system. That's, that's what happened. Right. I mean, these names are wildly inconsistent with each other and with everything else. Like, you know, you have things like, uh, I think, There are versions of colors that you have light something and you don't actually have the something by itself. There are weird names like Indian Red or Peru or Blanched Almond. and Golden Rod. Golden Rod Yellow. 
I think there's light goldenrod yellow, but there's no goldenrod yellow. Like they have some variations, but not others. I can't remember the exact details. And yes, one of the most weird things about them is exactly what you mentioned, that gray is actually darker than dark gray. We already had gray from the initial set of 16 colors and we couldn't change it. Yeah, that's the thing with the web. You cannot undo. Well, I suggest I suggest we do. I will buy you a large bunch of nice lilies and a good bottle of red wine if you will go and deprecate those named colors. There are a lot of thoughts about having a more intuitive system. So far, we don't really have anything in the spec right now. At some point, there used to be a proposal about a better system where it was basically sort of an English-based HSL-like syntax, which was removed because it had the same problems as HSL. It is definitely a direction that we want to go. Like, there needs to be a good way to define uh, human-readable names for colors. I suppose there is less of a pressing need right now because of CSS variables, because you can always mm. define colors that have nice readable names and just reference them throughout your CSS. But there's definitely interest in this. Create your dark gray and light gray, like proper ones in CSS variables and leave Leah alone. (laughs) Okay, I I will cease holding you personally responsible for a naming convention before any of us were born, probably. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge. Keep on tagging, I suppose, as it's Memorial Day over in your neck of the woods, I should say. Thank you for your service, being the stormtroops of the tag and enforcing nice design principles. Um, And all the other stuff you've done, thank you. And uh, give our love to Chris and Zoe. Will do. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. So, dear listeners, all three of you, we draw a close to this edition of The F Word. Thank you very much to Leah Veru, and thank you for listening. Of course, most of the things that we've referenced will be in the show notes. So, until next time, it's goodbye from Birmingham. Cheers from Berlin. And cheers from Massachusetts. Keep on webbing. Keep on webbing.